Welcome to Truthiverse, the number one podcast for free and discerning minds. I'm your host, Brendan Murphy, author and founder of The Truthiversity. As a freedom hacker and truth addict, it's my job to help you reclaim yourself from illusion and live in your power. Living in truth sets you free to holistically upgrade your entire life so you can explore infinite possibility. Join me as we hack our way to a higher evolution. Truthiverse is officially sponsored by The Grow Network, founded by Marjorie Wildcraft, who is the female leader in the survival and preparedness space. With the food supply under attack worldwide and more uncertainty than ever, you may want to check out her free You Can Grow Food webinar. It'll show you how to grow loads of food as fast as possible, even if you have no experience, are older, or just plain out of shape. Check it out for free at brendansbackyard.com. Okay, so you are, let's start from the start. So you are the author of um, Caesar's Messiah. You're basic thesis is something I'd really like to introduce people to. Uh, you talk about this Jesus Moses typology, and you talk about the Titus thing as well. Um, and, you know, I'd really like to sort of introduce people at a ground level to this and, you know, see where we can take it. So ladies and gents, this is Joseph Atwill. Um, and you are, you are probably a figure of uh, a fair bit of controversy. I mean, you only just come onto my radar very recently, which is, you know, kind of annoying to me that I haven't known about you a lot earlier, but you must have generated a fair bit of controversy. And I've seen on your blog, you've got these, uh, academics, you know, what was his name? Carrier who, who, um, you know, like to, you know, pick at your work and misrepresent it and, and all this kind of stuff. So, Yes. How did you end up in this? I think you mentioned briefly, but how can you take us back to the beginning of how you stumbled into this this um, kind of this revelation that you've kind of been unfolding over the years? Sure. Um, well, I, I, I developed an interest in um, sort of the the history of Christianity. Uh, I went to school at a uh, uh, St. Mary's Military Academy in Tokyo. And so my early life was spent sort of by myself, we were uh, one of the very first non-military families in the country, and so I didn't have any friends. So I was, uh, I was a reader, I read, and uh, that's what I was able to do with my time. And, um, you know, obviously catechism, the teaching of, it was a Catholic school, teaching about Jesus was sort of the main subject. So I was interested in that. And then later, um, I fell away from the faith. I'd been raised a Catholic, and for no particular reason, just things were more interesting. I, I just stopped participating and was doing other things. And um, later in life, though, I, I was still interested in Christianity. Specifically, I became interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> what was amazing to me was that they were describing a messianic movement, right? Um, but one that was militaristic, uh, the one that did not want to get along or, you know, uh, carry the Roman soldier's backpack or turn the other cheek. This was a xenophobic and militaristic outfit. And I could not understand how the two messianic movements, the one that the, is described in the Gospels and the one that the Dead Sea Scrolls describes, could get along together. I, I thought they would be at each other's throats, and yet there is no description of this movement in the Gospels. So to under, try to understand that, I um, read the Roman historian Josephus. This is the only individual that you can get any background on the era from. There's only one history of the region, and that comes from Josephus. And it was trying to understand um, sort of the, you know, just the ethos of the era through Josephus that I noticed that there was a strange relationship between Josephus and the Gospels. And I saw a lot of the... Um, passages in Josephus as 
somehow mocking or having some kind of parallelism to events in the Gospels. Um, and one day I had the sort of the, the only really original insight, uh, which was that the parallels that I had been studying uh, between Josephus and the Gospels were occurring in the same sequence. They're occurring in the same sequence in both works. And so this indicated to me that it wasn't just Josephus making fun of Christianity, which is what my original idea was, but rather I was dealing with something different than that, something um, broader. And um, I, I also um, realized uh, through great effort that at the beginning of the Gospels, there is a, a typological, what I would call a primer. It's something that actually is supposed to, uh, as, as it turns out, uh, introduce people to the style of literature that the Gospels are written within. And even though I thought I had discovered this system, um, it, it is actually well known to scholarship. Uh, Goulder had written about it, at, you know, in like the nineteen. Uh, 30s or something, you know, so it's an old, it's well understood by scholarship. And even though it just takes a few, it takes a bit of time, I'm just going to go through it because it's mm. this, this little tiny system of typology. I mean, I'm only going to read like eight different parallels, but if, if a listener can understand this, they will have the, all that they need to understand the rest of the gospel. And beyond that, much of modern uh, literature is actually based upon this one, one way or another. So you're sort of in the dark and really understanding a lot of our literature without understanding how this simple typologic system operates. So basically in, uh, just to, to recap, um, in, at the beginning of the gospels in Matthew, you have a story where Joseph, uh, who is the father of Jesus, uh, has dreams and th these cause him to go from Israel down to Egypt. Um, that's in, I'll give the citation of the, the places just where people can easily find them. It's 2.13, 2.16, you have the uh, massacre of the boys by Herod. Uh, 2.20, you have a divine person show up and he tells Joseph, they are dead who sought the young child life. This leads to return from Egypt back to Israel. <clears throat> um, then in uh, Matthew 3.13, Jesus passes through water. It's his baptism. Then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, right? Um, and you have the temptations. You have uh, quotations uh, of concerning tempted by bread at 4.4, do not tempt God, 4.7, and then worship only God, 4.10. So this is well known as the overview of the, <clears throat> what can be called the pre-ministry of, uh, of Jesus. All right, starts at the very beginning of the book, of you know, page one of Matthew, and goes through 410. Now, the entire story has been lifted, in other words, taken based upon uh, the Old Testament. And you can see this if you if you actually uh, stand back and look at the broad concepts. Uh, in Genesis 45:50, Joseph, dreamer of dreams, uh, he goes from Israel down to Egypt. Exodus 1, the Pharaoh massacres the boy. Exodus 4, you have a, a verbatim quote that, that Matthew uses, all the men of David sought the child's life. Um, Exodus 12, you have the same journey. You go from Egypt back to Israel. Exodus 14, you pass through water. You have the, um, uh, the, the uh, going through the Dead Sea bit with the, uh, the Israelites escaping. Um, 
I'll, I'll return to that at the, at the conclusion, because that's a very important parallel. But then, um, you know, you have the going into the, uh, into the wilderness, just as Jesus does, or actually Jesus is, is repeating the, the theme from the Old Testament. You go into the wilderness, but the Israelites go in there for 40 years. Notice that Jesus goes for 40 days. And you can see that the typology, the relationship is not verbatim. It's not verbatim. There's just enough information inside the, you know, that the two uh, stories are sharing. So an alert reader can see that one is based on the other. But you use, then there's the verbatim quotes that Matthew uses in, in the correct sequence. Exodus 16, the, the tempted by bread. Exodus 17, the instruction, do not tempt God. And then Exodus 32, worship only God. So what you got is um, locations, physical locations. You have concepts right? Like the passing through water. Um, you have names, Joseph, um, you know, uh, the, um, and uh, the wilderness. And then you have sequence. Okay. So you have, the, it's occurring in the same sequence. Now the sequence is very important. And this is something that, that is not well understood by both New Testament scholarship and literary scholarship in general. Sequence provides context and meaning to parallels that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. And I'm referring specifically in this instance to the passing through water. I mean, it, if you just read the two parallels side by side, it would make no sense at all. I mean, the Israelites are a whole bunch of them, uh, and they, it's not in the River Jordan. Um, they don't actually get dunked in the water, it's just the opposite. On, on Jesus' side, you know, you, you, he actually is dunked in water. It's at the River Jordan. So it's, they're not very, very parallel. However, they do occur in the same point. And in Matthew, he makes sure that an alert reader understands that these, these events are linked because he takes a verbatim quote from the Exodus story and puts it into Jesus, right? He says, out of, out of, out of Egypt, I have called my son, right? Israelites are referred to as the son of God. And Jesus uh, in God the Father applies the same quote to Jesus. So he makes sure that an alert reader sees the system. Okay, so the whole theory in Caesar's Messiah is that that system, this system of typology, of, of parallel concepts, names, locations occurring in sequence, goes forward in time. The, the one I just gave is a way of representing Jesus Christ as the new Moses. Okay, so he has all these events from Exodus, from the old story, the old Moses, the old covenant, and Jesus is going to be the new covenant. So he's kind of representing that he is the founder, uh, the intercede, the person who intercedes between God and, and the, the, the followers of the religion. Um, and so he's the new Moses. Okay, so that's what this system of typology does. It identifies, you know, it has this link between Jesus and Moses. Now, when you go forward in the adult ministry, the same system is used. In other words, the author does not shift genres. He stays in this genre. And so when you go forward, you'll see that um, Jesus has parallels, but not going back to the Old Testament, but forward in time to the war between the Romans and the Jews. Okay, now, this may seem odd, but you have to sort of remember that Jesus's prophecies are about the coming war with, uh, with Rome, the war between the Jews and Rome. In other words, Jesus envisions uh, Jerusalem being encircled. He envisions the temple being raised. He envisions the abominations of desolation. So these are events that occur 40 years later during the Roman Jewish war. Um, and so 
the the parallels that make up the this relationship between Jesus and and the war, a great many of them have been seen by scholars. Mm-hmm. They're not hard to see. They're pretty vivid, um, but they've never noticed that they're occurring in the same sequence. They've always analyzed them as single parallels, and then they come up with some explanation for why the author of Matthew or Luke <clears throat> or Mark might have had some cause to be aware of something in Josephus or, you know, they have some explanation, but they never talk about this overall construction of Jesus's ministry as having been entirely developed entirely out of the, uh, out of the Roman war. Um, so um, that is in a nutshell, the, the, you know, the, the interpretive framework that I believe a reader is supposed to take um, into the gospels, you just don't shift genres. You just stay in the typological genre and you just go forward. And what this does, the purpose of this, is that Jesus um, envisions someone coming in 40 years. Okay, now I, I can show you how that the number is exactly 40, but it would take a bit of time. But in any case, it's 40 years in the future he's looking. He sees that, uh, you know, Jerusalem's going to be encircled, temple's going to get raised, not one stone atop another, the abomination of desolation. All of these events from the war are going to occur. And he indicates that this will occur when someone he refers to as the Son of Man arrives. So he says, Son of Man comes, the events from the war occur. Um, and so just as the typologic system I earlier described, the short one looks back to Moses, the one in, in the ministry of the adult ministry of Jesus looks forward to um, an individual who comes uh, as just as Jesus predicts um, and uh, comes with, with the, uh, the, the destruction that Rome wrought upon the Jews in uh, 66 to 73 AD. Now, um, in fact, the system of typology indicates that just as the parallels look back to Moses, that actually it's looking to uh, a Roman Caesar, Titus Flavius. Okay, so this individual is the is the person who fulfilled the prophecies that Jesus envisions, right? And this has been well understood, of course, but what has been missed is that Jesus's ministry has all these little clever links into the life of Titus and the military campaign of Titus, just as you had the clever links looking back to, to Moses, the clever links now are, are looking to the Roman Caesar, so that you can see the identity, the actual name of the of the individual that Jesus calls the uh, the Son of Man, and that this individual is Titus Flavius. Now, in Josephus, this concept that Titus is the uh, the Messiah is underscored by the historian himself, because Josephus says that what propelled the Jews to rebel in 66 was their belief in the, in the coming Messiah, that there were prophecies in their scriptures that envisioned uh, you know, a, a Messiah would come who would, who would basically save Israel. This is what they believe. This is what Josephus claims uh, propelled them to rebel. And Josephus then states that, you know, the Jews were wrong, though, in thinking that the prophecies envisioned a Jewish individual. They envisioned the Flavian Caesar mm-hmm. and the government of Vespasian that, that Titus is the heir to. So this is, this is, Josephus has the exact correct theological understanding of the future that, 
the uh, the Flavian Caesar is the the actual Jewish Messiah. Now, um, what this means, uh, among other things, is that the Gospels, even though they look like religious literature and have been used, of course, as the basis for religious religion, they aren't religious literature. What they really are is a vanity piece. This 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 literature, the story of Jesus, was concocted to basically give to posterity the legacy that the, um, the Flavian Caesars had been able to become the god of the Jews, which was an enormous goal of the, uh, of the Caesars during the war. They actually would try to force Jews into calling them god or lord uh, by burning them, but the Jews are very stubborn, they wouldn't do it, so this was their solution is to create you know, this uh, cockamamie religion, uh, as it can be described in my context, um, with, with this religious literature, which has this um, strange character, the son of man that Jesus envisions. Um, now, uh, I'll just I'll conclude this little rant with this. The people fail to understand how perfectly wired the ministry of Jesus to the Roman Jewish war is. In fact, most Christians don't even really know much about the Roman Jewish war. They don't really even understand that the prophecies Jesus is making is concerning the war. But here's a way that is a real simple way to understand that the ministry of Jesus was developed and wired to um, the war. Jesus is the new, is the Passover of the new covenant. This is how he described himself. All of the symbolism or much of it is developed around the idea that he is a pa human Passover lamb. Okay, he's, he's deliberately set up. This isn't contested by scholarship because it's just too obvious. He is being established as a new Passover lamb. He talks about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He's killed on the Passover. Uh, you know, they touch him with hyssop. They, 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 the instructions for the preparation of the sacrifice are applied to his body. So he's, he's really well understood as the, the Passover uh, of, or the, excuse me, the, the sacrifice of the new covenant, which in the first covenant, the old covenant was the Passover lamb. So he is the human Passover lamb of the new covenant. All right, so he, he is um, crucified on Passover 33. All right, this is the easy to, to you know, extrapolate date looking just at the, at the text in the, in the gospels. You can say, okay, so he dies around 33 on Passover, which, you know, is appropriate because he is the human Passover lamb. So he dies on Passover. See, it makes all perfect sense. It's, you know, kind of witty theological construction. But what people don't realize is, is that, remember, there is a 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, 40 years. This is an important number 40 for, for Jews. And so Moses goes into the wilderness and he has to, you know, go through 40 years of wandering before he gets ownership of the promised land of Judea. So the human Passover lamb of the new covenant, he dies on Passover 33, and then 40 years to the day, which is a little curious, 40 years to the day is the fall of Masada. This is the day that Rome takes possession all of all of, uh, of Israel. So you can see that someone back calculated the new, the date of the human Passover lamb sacrifice from the war to create this perfect 40-year mirror uh, between the new covenant and the old covenant. So this is, um, 
this is Christianity at its foundation. It's it's constructed by by Rome. Um, it's it, it is. I think that the, the literature does have a political purpose. It's not just legacy vanity. They, they do want the character of Jesus Christ to become widely known because uh, he promotes social uh, kind of cooperation with the authorities and he instructs Jews not to rebel. So, you know, this is the kind of propaganda aspect of, of this new religion, but they could have done that you know, very simply, the, the real reason for the, the creation of the literature, if you read um, uh, my book, Caesar's Messiah, um, there's a lot of complicated puzzles and, and there's some historical analysis, but all you really have to do is just read the chapter called The Flavian Signature. And in that chapter, I just take uh, one gospel. I don't jump around um, because this, I don't want to confuse people. So I just take one gospel, Luke, and I just lay the text side by side, just lay them side by side. So anyone can see that the text in the gospels is definitely dependent upon these old, these parallels are too obvious, they're too vivid, they're too you know, unlikely to be circumstantial, um, that the entire ministry of Jesus has to be developed from the, the war because the events in the gospels are occurring in the exact same sequence as the ones in Luke. So, you know, um, people have tried to contest my theory and, and uh, um, you know, there are different ways they can attack it, but ultimately when you can simply lay the text side by side and then appeal to the reader's sense of reason, just say, look, here you go. Uh, and bearing in mind, like what one, you know, like some of the criticisms are parallel mania you know, that I'm seeing things that aren't there, just I'm making stuff up. So what I do is I say, fine, look, I'm going to give you parallels which other scholars saw long before me or things which are the exact same event, like in Jesus envisions encircling Jerusalem with a wall. I look at this is, there, so this is a historical event. Here's the historical event. Josephus records it look at where it occurs in the sequence. And when you do that, when you just take all of the vivid parallels that other scholars have, have noticed and written about and merge them with the historical events, a thing that there's no way anyone can contest, you end up with like 80% of, of what I, I posit and more than enough to see that, wait a second, one story is definitely based on the other. And because it hasn't been noticed, the, this obvious fact has been noticed, you can see that I'm really on good grounds here because this is a, at the very least, is the greatest oversight, just catastrophic failure of human intellect in history. No one has ever picked, no, no literature has ever been picked over more than the gospels and, and except perhaps the history of Josephus. And the fact that no one has ever tried to do this uh, little exercise that I, propose and demonstrate is really just a tragic oversight. And it has to do with the fact that the religion was so powerful, the faith developed to such an extent that people's minds were just trained to not see it. So yeah. anyway, that's, that's, uh, that is the story of Caesar's Messiah. Cool. I mean, man, there's so many, <laughs> there's so many questions at this point. And, you know, for people who I, I can put myself in the shoes of people who've never heard of you because I was there, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, um, and the, without visuals here, you know, to try to visualize what you're talking about in terms of chronology and these parallels, um, maybe let me ask you what what was the time frame that the the Flavians were constructing these 
these narratives and these parallel you know, uh, writings? When when were they actually doing this? Would have been between eighty and one hundred CE. Um, they would have. I mean, some of the stuff that's inside the Gospels you can kind of see when the Flavians would have been developing it um, based upon uh, their own uh, history. In other words, uh, there were three Caesars. Um, this is what this is the basis for the Trinity. Incidentally, this is why you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, I, I think that the the time that the first versions of the Gospels would have been produced would have been when uh, Vespasian had died. The, he was the first um, Flavian Caesar. He died, and they went to the Senate to try to have him deified. I mean, this was a, a habit uh, of um, uh, you know Roman imperial politics is that you would get a, a deceased Caesar made into a god, all right? And this is very important politically. I won't go into the Flavians, you know, specific political problems, but just in general, they were a new imperial family. They'd replaced the Julio-Claudians. So it was very important for them to hook up to the uh, imperial cult and have themselves deified as gods. So they wouldn't be seen as inferior to the Julio-Claudian line that they'd replaced. So when Vespasian died around 80, they went to the Senate and they were going to make the case that Vespasian was a god and they would have brought the events of his life as examples. And so at this point, I think you get some of the stories developed about, you know, Titus as or, or of Jesus Christ, and he's there with God the Father. And this would have been the beginning of the, the theologic construction, you know, the, of like God the Father the son of God, who is Titus, who was there doing this campaign, he's the one who actually ends up uh, the son of man, you know, being the, uh, the the Flavian that that fulfills Jesus's prophecy because Vespasian, his father, had to go back to, to Rome to, to take over the throne. And then you have this weird character, the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, that's, that is the third Flavian Caesar, uh, Domitian. Uh, he he uh, is kind of in and out of the story. It only is represented spiritually or in their memory or you know, this is because Domitian didn't participate in the war. So he's just kind of an attacked on event. But this is how the theology of the uh, of Christianity developed. It's just representing the three Flavian Caesars. Um, I think that as you got toward the year 100, um, the interest in the political aspect of Christianity would have been becoming much greater because you're, on, you're now only just about a little more than a decade away from uh, the Kittos Rebellion. Um, the Jews had three distinct rebellions against the Roman Empire. Uh, you have the, the famous one in 66, 73, where the temple is destroyed. And of course, every, most people know about the Bar Kokhba rebellion, uh, 133, all right, that was, the, that was the, that led to the diaspora. A lot of people don't know about the, the one that occurred um, early in the, uh, in the second century, the Kittos rebellion, which was an absolute bloodbath. Um, this was horrific. Um, the Jews gained control of Cyprus and genocided every Gentile on the island. Okay, this is the kind of level of hatred and, and uh, carnage, you know, that the war produced. Um, and it was really just an existential threat to the Roman Empire. There's actually a letter that had been uncovered by the Roman magistrate of Egypt fleeing down the Nile. Um, he was fleeing south to get away from uh, the Jews who had taken over control of Alexandria and the, the surrounding areas, which were the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. 
So this was not just some kind of trivial uprising. I mean, this was a, a struggle between great military powers. And I think that Christianity would have had a more urgent uh, sort, sort of interest on the part of the imperial family in Rome as you got toward this event, because uh, they, they were certainly well aware that the Jews were preparing to, you know, to have this rebellion. So um, Christianity was, you know, as I said, it's, it's primarily just a legacy vanity structure. It's really, I mean, if you think about it, it, it's simply one of the imperial cult religions. I mean, think of the imperial cult, which is the largest bureaucracy in the Roman Empire through this entire era. Um, all of the Flavians had made themselves eventually gods and were, you know, became part of the imperial cult. Um, Christianity is just the, the Jewish version of the imperial cult. It's, it's primarily just a way to represent Caesar as God. Um, there's a little hocus pocus, you know, because they don't name the individual that Jesus is looking forward to. Um, you have to, that's for the, you know, people who are cognizant and read the, the in, inside, you know, kind of. Uh, meaning of the Gospels. Um, but there was a political purpose for the religion too, which is self-evident. It's just they're trying to tone down the Messianic movement because like Joseph has pointed out, it was the Messianic prophecies that were propelling Jews to rebel. So the these rebellions could be seen as Messianic, which, which is really not a particularly meaningful term and because it just really means the king of the Jews. I mean, obviously they would have had uh, the Jews would have had some kind of uh, noble structure that would have led the rebellion. And um, that individual would have, you know, because they were religious Jews, would have claimed the kind of religious mantle uh, that the kings of the Jews would would attest. In, in other words, they would represent themselves as from the line of David and uh, would, would uh, claim a kind of a direct relationship to God because of this. In fact, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, by original interest, um, you could see that they were looking into the uh, the Old Testament, into the Torah, um, for signs to try to predict the future with. In other words, they were trying to create parallel patterns from the events described in the Torah, uh, you know, like the Habakkuk Pesher. Um, these Peshers were looking forward to a time when there would be a Messianic revival. So this was, uh, that's what Josephus is referring to when he said that the Messianic prophecies were what propelled them. And then this is why you know, they, you end up with a uh, Jesus Christ, this pro-Roman, um, really bizarre character, a historical character, if you think of him in terms of the era and the religion. But when you think of him as coming from Rome, he's, he's perfectly logical and almost, uh, you know, is to be uh, expected. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, a lot of Christians nowadays, they see, uh, they have a tendency to see Jesus as this kind of upstart underdog anti-establishment sort of character, but you're saying something completely different, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not, no, he's not, I mean, he was crucified. Um, so this is, you know, he's, he's, he's an underdog, but again, this is the reason he's crucified. I mean, you have kind of this hocus pocus theology that's associated with it. And, and of course it's been massively expanded by, uh, Know, Christian theologians as, as the religion moves through time. Mm. But ultimately, all you're really seeing is the um, sacrifice of the new Passover lamb. This is a, a he, what is being represented is the new covenant being established. So you have the old covenant with the sacrifice of the, uh, of the, of a, of a real lamb to start off the, the you know, the 40 year cycle. 
Um, and now, you know, with Christianity, you have a human who is representing this, um, but, it's, but it's all being done just to create the new cycle, the new 40-year um, process to develop a new covenant. They're trying to, to, to give people who are looking at the literature the impression that the old covenant is dead, that the, God and the Jews are no longer fused, and in fact, this, this prophet, this Jesus Christ, has, has created a new covenant. And this is one that just conveniently is run by the, uh, by the Roman Empire. Um, a, little, a few little historical bonbons that are amusing. Um, the, uh, the Pope, who is Jesus's representative, uh, has the title of Pontiff Maximus. And this is, in fact, a title that Caesar held. Uh, this would indicate he is the head of the Roman College of Priests. So the Pontiff Maximus uh, is historically Caesar. And then the one that I always find the most amusing is that you have the Vatican, which has um, the huge St. Peter's, you know, this giant palace kind of thing. And it has that huge square. It's a giant open area that has an obelisk in the center of it. Um, well, what's kind of funny is that that is literally the Flavian Circus. I mean, they didn't even move it. The Flavian Circus, which is where the chariot races were held, was were done in that giant uh, area with an obelisk right in the middle of it. Hmm. And then their uh, residence was directly adjacent. So you can see the Pontiff Maximus of the uh, Christian religion didn't even change titles or move. <laughs> they just stayed put and, uh, and then just de declared it a... Uh, you know, uh, something that, that was being overseen by uh, the relationship to Jesus Christ. Mm. It's, it's unbelievable when you put it like that. Um, so I want to, I want to, for people, I think it's useful to, you know, you've got this kind of like three stage uh, kind of chronology here and, you know, we've got the Moses, the Jesus phase, and then the, the Titus phase. And essentially what you're saying is the, something like the, the the Flavians, were looking back through time. They were looking base. They were working from the Old Testament material, uh, the Joseph, uh, sorry, the Moses typology, and then they were essentially fabricating this this um, you know savior figure, this Messiah, based on that pattern and the chronology. But they were also at the same time they were using this character to uh, presage the, their own you know dynasty and their own activities and uh, and this sort of stuff. I think it's it's really and you know hopefully I've got that kind of on the money um, and correct me if anything's kind of distorted there but I I would like to kind of see if we can pull on that thread a little bit of how they took the Moses um, typology and we ended up you know they were working backwards to create this other this midpoint um, the the chronology and the characters involved I feel like we need to we need to maybe clarify this in terms of. Can you can you comment more on the the Flavian uh, approach sure. I mean, let, approach let to this? And I'll I'll give I'll give uh, I can do this in my head because I have been familiar with. But but I'll help the reader by giving some citations. So that's easy to do. It's not hard. You don't have to. Okay. So um, uh, you know, you they probably don't have copy of Josephus. It'd be hard, but most everyone could get the New Testament. Okay. So you look at like Luke four. Nazareth, right? Well, where does that location come from? Well, if you go to Josephus, the history of Titus, uh, three, three, book three, chapter seven, line 304, 
you'll see that's where he um, he bivouacs. This is where Titus actually sets up his little camp. Jesus then, you know, he goes up to the brow of the hill. The Jews try to push him over, but they can't, and he goes right through them. Well, if you read the story, what what Titus does, um, he uh, uh, he goes up to the he breaks through their defenses and the and the city, and then he passes through the town. I mean, and he slaughters everybody. So you can see there's kind of this rough typological uh, linkage. The town Nazareth, uh, the the name of it uh, is given in Luke, but is only understood in in. Um, and it's not Josephus doesn't have it, the, the name of the town. Uh, the, the fact that the uh, ancient Catholic sort of archaeologists like Helena, who is Constantine's mother, saw this as the location, can only come from the fact that they know that, you know, this was where Titus begins his campaign. I mean, Judea is a huge place, and yet they found exactly the right spot to locate it, basically, through the physical um, you know, kind of, kind of uh, outline of Titus's campaign. Um, Luke five, you have the famous, um, you know, thing at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, "From now on, you're going to be fishing uh, for men." Um, this would correspond to Wars three, uh, line four six three, and that's where uh, Titus comes to the same location, the Sea of Galilee, and he gets his men together and he says, "Don't be afraid," and they go out into the uh, end of the sea and they uh, sink the Jewish ships and they catch the men like fish. Okay, so this is, you can see there is a, a typologic link, even though it's sort of grim realism, but it's, uh, you know, it's hard to miss. Um, now, you know, there's other, there's other stuff, but some of them are complicated. At, at a certain point you go, um, um, you know, you, you, you travel from, Jesus says, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna go to Jerusalem, um, Titus tells his troops, you know, we're going to go to Jerusalem. You, you're outside Jerusalem for a while. Jesus, for some reason, doesn't go in immediately. He goes to, uh, he's outside. And you'll see if you go to Luke, um, uh, like Luke 13, 6, he talks about cutting down the fruit trees. You know, he says, if they don't bear good fruit, when you cut them down. Uh, Titus comes there, uh, Wars 5, 3, book 3. He, he says, you know, we've got to cut these fruit trees down. We're going to make some scaffolding for the walls assault. So cutting down the fruit trees. Um, uh, you have the triumphant entrance, uh, Luke 19. Uh, this one's a little complicated, but you actually have verbatim passages that go back and forth between uh, the description of, of Titus's entrance and, uh, and the entrance at Luke 19. Titus's entrance occurs at Wars 5, 6. Then Jesus says, you know, we're going to encircle with a wall, Luke 1945. Uh, Josephus records um, at Wars 5, um, book 7, that Titus actually does encircle Jerusalem with a wall. Um, Luke 22, 39, you're you on the Mount of Olives, you capture somebody, um, and uh, you take him away. He's, he's going to get crucified. They, they don't say he's going to get crucified, but he's, uh, he's regarded as kind of a, a leader sort of person uh, from a, you know, an uh, uh, in very well-known family, they say. They capture him on Mount of Olives. Uh, you're back on the Mount of Olives with, uh, you know, with um, uh, Josephus. Um, oh, excuse me, that, that, it, it, that, that, this, I, that was Luke. Well, in Josephus, you, have this, you go to the Mount of Olives, same place. They capture someone. Um, there's, some, there's some punning going on about they're going to crucify the guy. 
But then you go outside of Jerusalem now. Now, this is like really a lot of people wonder, you know, well, if I just have to look at one parallel, I mean, I know you have all the historical things, but what what is like the one parallel? I don't have to waste a lot of time. Well, there's a story in, in, uh, in wars that occurs in the correct time in terms of the chronology. And in the story, you, you, have, uh, you have three people being crucified. And then uh, uh, Josephus comes and he goes, I want to take these guys down. And one of them amazingly survives. So it's very much a, you know, very suspicious that you have one surviving out of a group of three. But if you look deeper into the story, you can see that there is just an, an incredible oversight and scholarship is that um, the actual name of Josephus is Joseph Barmatheus. And then in, in, the, in Luke, you have Joseph Arimathea. And if you actually lay the Greek out, it's just two different letters. And remember, like I was saying, it's not verbatimism, but you got like, you know, 90% of the name of the parallel between the guys who asked, and this it's the Roman commander uh, that Josephus asked to take down from the cross. And, and the story is just too many moving parts. It's, um, it, it is actually taken on just that the uh, three crucified one survives. If, if readers or listeners want to like uh, uh, get into this, you, you can just Google it and you'll see that this is un, all by itself has taken on a life that this parallel, there's lots of websites that are just dedicated to studying it. And, and people who pick it over can realize they go, yeah, this is, is definitely something going on this this one story looks dependent on the other and then the the most important part well one of the most important part is that the story in the gospels occurs at the end of the of the uh, toward the end of the campaign well it's the same place over in josephus you see what i mean in other words the sequence is it creates a kind of um uh, improbability for any possibility of it being an accidental uh, connection. I mean, there's just too many moving parts. It's occurring at the correct point. So you just have to, um, at a certain point, uh, lay down the, uh, the idea that, that this is circumstance because there's simply too many historical events um, and too many parallel sort of conceptual events. And the sequence is too long. You know, at a certain point, that's why the, the book has been so popular is because really it's the only book that has real evidence. In other words, you know, there's like mythicism, you know, people talk about there's a prior Jesus community that developed something called Q. You know, there are different theories about how the literature came into existence, but it's all conjecture. They, there's of course no evidence of a prior Jesus community or of a document. There's no physical evidence of Q. They just extrapolate that these things had to event have to existed because that's how their theories hold together. But here, when you just take one text and lie it down next to the other, and it is the existing text, um, that's it. You know, if, if you show dependency, then you have solved all the problems. And I would just say a normal good reader will have no trouble whatsoever going through it and just saying, yeah, you know, this is this is correct. This was this was how the adult ministry of Jesus was developed. And you know, and then bear in mind that. When I posit this, when I say, look, this is this is how the ministry of Jesus is, is in existence, I have another thing which you know critics really do need to contemplate a little bit, um, in that I am not changing genres. If I was inventing the genre, if I was saying, you know, I see this this parallelism and I can kind of make sense out of it in a certain way, 
Okay, I mean, I would say, you know, there there would be legitimate criticism on, on the grounds that this, you know, perhaps is far-fetched because it's original. But I'm not, the system I showed you, the original, you know, parallel system of the Jesus-Moses is well understood by scholars. Nobody contests it. They know what it means. Uh, and because it has no controversy associated with it, they all can accept it very easily. So the the actual typologic system that I'm positing goes forward is one that does exist in the Gospels. So I, I would say that um, this is just about as strong of, of an interpretive framework as, as is possible. And it really should have been at the very least, at the very least, this should have been understood and have been put juxtaposed to the idea of historicity. There should have been, this should have been, you know, meat and potatoes to New Testament scholarship hundreds of years ago. And this should have been given to individuals as a possible way of understanding this literature because it's so simple, so straightforward. And, and that would have led us out of the um, confusion of Christianity, you know, quite a bit earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the things that I was reading on your blog yesterday, I was doing doing a bit of um, background and, you know, I read a few articles. One of the things that you did talk about was <clears throat> this kind of intentional, it was like the Flavians intentionally made it such that eventually people would notice the the ruse or the game that they were playing as such. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you have, what do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, the, the thing that most... Uh, if you drive around Rome, uh, the ancient uh, structures, you know, that were created by by the Caesars, they're vanity pieces. And there's something they have, a, you know, famous thing called the Arch of Titus. Okay, it's the Arch of Titus. It's across from the Colosseum. Um, and on it, it has the statement, um, the God Vespasian and the Son of God, Titus. Okay, now the events that are being depicted on, on the arch are the same events that Jesus was envisioning as associated with the son of man. So the vanity that created the arch of Titus, right, is the same force that is creating the gospels. It's, it's, it's easy now. On the, on the arch, it's overt, but here they simply hit it um, and wanted people to see it in the future, but they put it there. They, they, they put the typology in that I show is a big deal, but they couldn't have done this overnight. This would have been a lot of, of work to have, to have created three different, you know, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke to put the typology in, in these gospels, a lot of work. But what's driving it, the energizing principle is the vanity of the Caesar. So this is why um, it was hidden because they want the religion to work, but it's also why ultimately it can be seen because they wanted to have their, um, uh, their legacy uh, understood um, by posterity. They, they thought, which is amazing when you think about it, they thought that we would look at this and see them in a favorable light. They thought that in the future, people would look at this uh, about them creating this false religion and would be um, impressed and give them a positive historical legacy because of it. So this gives you an insight into the, you know, kind of the mindset of the Caesars, how, you know, how, how uh, Machiavellian uh, they were, um, that, 
you know, and, and it also, I think is, a, but in fact, I think that they'll get a very negative legacy uh, at this point, but, but they, the legacy that's really important is that even 2000 years ago, the government is involved in social control, false narratives, story of Jesus, for the purpose of social control, which means the ossification of their power. Okay, so today, I believe that uh, the lessons uh, learned from Christianity are well applied. I would think that at this point, uh, you know, you can see that the government is interested in social control through propaganda, and they are not the friends often of the of the citizen. They they have uh, uh, you know malevolent purposes that are that are known to them and for their self interest against the people. Mm -hmm. And so I would think that the the modern Christianity, the the neo Christianity that uh, uh, to create an expression that that uh, the Caesar's Messiah might eventually create would be kind of an anti-Christianity in which instead of accepting the narratives that government give us, we would be um, just the opposite, is that we, we don't believe anything you say to us. We have to, every single claim you make, we're going to, look, we are going to scrutinize and we will develop <clears throat> more powerful tools of analysis and criticism because we don't believe a single thing you say because yeah, of right. that. I would say like the COVID debacle would be a classic example of how a more alert citizenry, a more skeptical citizenry with better analytic tools would never have gone along with the lockdowns or, or the mandates for the vaccines. Completely. I completely agree. Um, and it's kind of ironic that a, a lot of the, in the sort of, you know, the truth movement or what have you, whatever you want to call it, we have uh, a significant Christian contingency who are very much against standing against this sort of uh, this tyranny and this deception and the manipulation, but they often they ironically do it in you know in the name of Jesus. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Well, you know, at this point, um, all roads uh, lead away from Rome. To you know, use an expression, um, you know, look, they they are developing technology for control. I mean, you look at the Twitter mess that uh, Elon Musk you know points out about how they're using this technology to create. You know, or to shut down uh, criticism and to promote concepts that are beneficial to them. So the government really has some fancy technology. Um, we, on the other hand, uh, we don't want to take vaccines that are bad for us or to permit ourselves to be locked down for you know, diseases which really aren't uh, dangerous. So we, we just have to fight back with our intellect. And um, uh, the Christians, um, you know, they have uh, it, it, within their Christianity, they have the basis for uh, uh, skepticism about, you know, the intellectual power of men and of uh, and of, of man's government as opposed to spiritual government. Well, this is a good starting point. Uh, I would hope that they don't lose what is good in Christianity. I hope they were able to retain and, and use that as an energizing principle to to like uh, become more skeptical of the government of men because so often it's being established uh, in, in a way that's malevolent to, to the population who are supposed to be the subjects. Completely, I completely agree. I'm glad we're on the same page with that, uh, Joseph. I'm wondering, as far as the, you know, the Jesus uh, mythological sort of supernatural savior type stuff, the, the more uh, paranormal or supernatural elements of that, of that narrative, um, what, have you sort of spent much time paying attention to that side of it, the, su the supernatural aspects? Um, 
you know, I have my own sort of sort of understanding uh, and and also faith. Um, I was raised a Catholic, uh, and my my family was religious. My uncle was a Monsignor. Um, I really liked the uh, the Catholic priest that taught me when I was young. They that meant my <laughs> the zenith of my intellectual powers were certainly like the third grade. You know, when uh, um, I was I was with them and and they were training me in reading and things. Uh, uh, so I like uh, Christianity and I like the the um, the spiritual side of it. Um, I would I would I advocate as as spiritual the basis for particularly in our current moment I'm sure you'll agree at least to some extent that this is correct is that what really is human spirituality is the sharing of truth and of which through logic um, and through reason and you know we have our I think our personalities are exaggerated and to some extent destructive and this has been deliberately shaped by the oligarchs through, you know, pornography and through uh, avarice, you know, the, you know, the idea of greed and things. They're, they're able to manipulate humans very, very easily by picking at at our weaker, our weaker elements. Um, and so we are, we are in, we are isolated. You know, you you have in in our current moment, I would say, you know, you have like pornographic males and uh, single moms, and you know, and are also you know women that want to. Uh, um, you know, explore uh, away from family and just into, you know, political and financial power, which there's nothing wrong with per se, but it is not, you know, a principle that can, you know, sustain biology. So you have to at least question it to some extent. But my point is, is that when we engage in reason, we are unified. The, you know, the differences are not as great as what we share. And so when I think of like the future of religion, I would love to see it based more on the Socratic principle uh, rather than contestation and debate. Uh, I, I would like to see spirituality based on the moment of sharing of, of logic, reason, and truth. In other words, when, when, you're trying, when you're legitimately engaged in just trying to figure stuff out, if you have someone who's good at one thing and another person who's good at another, these aren't elements of contestation it's not a battle everyone can contribute what they can and if the human reason is in all of us engaged you end up with us being able to um uh to to have improvement in our thinking and in our understanding of self and i think that 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 moment of unification where there is um everyone can agree or at least or is in the process of agreement that the information that we have and the logic we have, the explanation we have, we are sharing and seeing as truth. And I think that process is really, would have been, uh, I think, more engaged in, in the religions before, um, you know, the oligarchs took them over and started to manipulate them. And I, I would say like, as just as an example of how far in the wrong direction you can go, look at like Helen Bovatsky or uh, Alistair uh, Crowley, these people are government agents. They aren't legitimate mystics. I mean, I can show you chapter and verse how they are developed as agents. They are part of, um, you know, taking people into mysticism away from reason, away from the process I described. So that with with Crowley and, and um, Blavatsky, you have absolutely real-time examples of 
how religion can be used to take us out of the context that is a real spirituality, you know, which is when, where we're sharing one another's minds with one another through reason. That's the portal. It's not, you know, the satanic masses and uh, uh, sex magic and all of the other nonsense. That's to take us away from being able to share with one another, you see. So that's that's my take on, on spirituality is that um, the mystical side is is should be at the end of the process of the Socratic method, the end of the sharing of reason. There, that's where we'll get to to kind of the uh, the, the the sharing and understanding of spirit. The other directions, the you know the the ones that uh, you know come through uh, pop culture are are just designed to take us away from it. Mm. I find it interesting. Um, do you think it's just a coincidence that you know, if you look at the Jesus, the Jesus character as a, a sim, on a symbolical level, um, and his you know so-called relation or relationship with God uh, on a symbolical level, there's a lot of um, you know esoterically accurate stuff there if you can see it at that level, and that's what I've noticed over the years is whoever was writing this and making creating this. Um, seem to have quite a lot of esoteric insight. I don't know if that, that was serendipity or, I mean, do you have any thoughts around that? Well, it's correct. They did. They knew exactly how to, to create the character. And, and you just have to remember two things. One is the, the imperial cult and, and even the mystery religions would have been under the control to some extent of, of the, uh, you know, the, the imperial family. And so they would have had to have developed these techniques to a very high level. So when you see Christianity, you're looking at you know, when Jesus is having his, uh, you know, like existential experience, you know, and, uh, you know, he's, he's bleeding, you know, because he's so distressed. I mean, there's a lot of, 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 of knowledge of how to create this kind of religion that, that the imperial family is, uh, is applying against the public. Um, and then the other thing, which is a little harder to understand, is that a lot of what we see as legitimate kind of uh, esoteric spirituality, we believe that we have it in our thought world because it has been developed historically by the oligarchs. That, that's how it got placed there. I think a good person to kind of study the literature of this, well, uh, the two I, I gave are probably the, the best example, would be Lobotsky, uh, The Secret Doctrine, and then uh, Crowley's uh, like ludicrous sex magic stuff. That that stuff is developed as uh, you know propaganda and mind control, very sophisticated, but it but it is in fact there. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, this concludes part one of the show. You'll find part two and related materials in my members-only portal, The Truthiversity, the consciousness-raising university. This creation is the official home for all my multimedia research and entertainment content. Updated regularly, my members get access to absolutely everything I create, including full podcasts, videos, blogs, courses, audio files, live internal events, the whole enchilada. Grab yourself a free 24-hour pass at access.truthiversity.com.